Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. This is Baseball is Good. My name is Corey Engelhart. I am the host. This is the 42nd episode. Um, for those have, who have not been listening or who have been, I just want to say thank you as I've had fun doing this show weekly and uh, bringing different guests and different topics along um, to to chat about. Most of the time it's been baseball, but it's kind of kind of shot in different directions at different points. And I'm excited for tonight because uh, the person I'm talking with and he'll be able to give a better uh, description and uh, talk about his his background better than I will here. But it's it's very different necessarily from the sport of baseball, and it's a sport that I'm starting to get into a little bit and be more excited about over the last year plus or so. Um, and that's curling. And so I'm going to bring my guest on here, and we'll get the show started, and he can introduce himself and and what he does. Uh, one moment, I'm going to bring him on. Hi, Gary. Are hey, you Corey. There? How's it going? I am here. Oh, pretty great. How about yourself? Doing well. That's good. How are sitting you doing? Here on the media bench at the yeah, sitting here on the media bench at the uh, men's world championships in Las Vegas. Uh, happy to uh, connect with you. Yeah, thank you again. I, I appreciate your time. It was just kind of a, a random checking in on Twitter to see if I could talk to somebody with with your company. I didn't know I'd have the chance to talk with you. It's pretty. I'm, I'm pretty excited. Yeah, so I, yeah, I've been uh, you know big baseball fan myself uh, most of my life. A lot of a lot of my interest is definitely uh, from a statistical uh, uh, angle, and uh, the connection to curling is pretty natural there too. And that uh, the type of game that uh, you know we look at, it's it's very much turn based and a lot of decision making, and uh, definitely a lot of similarities between uh, curling and baseball. Yeah, I, I get that, and I think for me that's why I was able to fall into curling and enjoy it the way as much as I have, and I've only been doing it for about a year, so I'm very much a novice and very much learning, and I wouldn't say good by any stretch of the imagination, but it's certainly fun to be a part of and follow. Yeah, it's uh, it definitely takes some time to master the sport. Uh, in the United States, you know, curling has really come on the radar probably since 2002 with the uh, Olympic Games that were held in Salt Lake City. It was kind of when the game got its awakening. And uh, from that time, we've really seen some extraordinary growth in the country. Curling clubs forming uh, out of arenas, and many of them have taken the next step to building dedicated facilities. And uh, it's, it's really neat to see the excitement for the sport in the United States. I love coming down and playing in, in uh, summer spiels that go on. It's really the only time I get to curl anymore. But uh, you know, Hollywood has a great event in uh, in uh, early July, um, likely heading down to the Rocky Top Open in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, beginning in June as well. But uh, you know, there's there's amazing events to play all season long, and, and the curlers that play in the U.S. on Ice conditions that we consider pretty terrible, but how much uh, fun that they have and how much passion uh, they have for the game. It's, it's really refreshing and, and uh, you know, really rejuvenates me every chance I, I get a chance to play those events. Sure. Well, okay, before we really dive in otherwise, I'd love if you could just 
say your name and maybe because uh, you started a company that we'll talk about, but also uh, your social media connection in case people want to ask you questions, how, how they would connect with you. Yeah, I'm Jerry Gertz, uh, president of uh, Curling Zone. Uh, started back in uh, 2000 as a website to try and get, uh, uh, you know, just to just to dabble in in uh, programming and technology and all that stuff. I was working for uh, another internet company at the time uh, on a co-op term, and and uh, the company was really uh, great in encouraging uh, me to uh, you know pursue my own uh, interests at the same time. In 2006, I went on my own, and I've been working in curling full-time. Definitely, yeah, we do. Uh, we've got a Facebook page. You can search for curlings on there. Lots of content and share tons of stuff. Um, anywhere from, you know, random uh, like news stories, information, things that are going on, but some fun stuff as well. We've got some curlers who post some uh, cartoons and, and some memes up there as well. And uh, on Twitter, you can find us at Curling Zone. Instagram, we've got an account there. And, uh, yeah, we keep working on other social media accounts, too. And it's just a matter of trying to find something that's viable and uh, can generate exposure at the same time. Sure. So, yeah, you started Curling Zone. And um, for people who aren't curlers or even necessarily know much about the sport, how would you describe what, what that website and destination is? Really, it's 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 all about uh, scores and results. It's it's what drives the site. Um, it's what people come to uh, find information as to what events are going on and what the scores are. So right now, for example, the men's world curling championships are going on in Las Vegas, and and uh, we've got uh, the live scores from all the games going on there. But we do that for all events. Uh, throughout the season so uh, you know it's it goes back uh, to uh, 2003 2004 and and really what got it started was building the the scoring engine that uh, some of the tours picked up and started using and and then what we do is we simulcast a lot of the top events that are being played if we're not already covering them ourselves so sort of a one-stop shop to see what all the curling teams are doing and uh, and get some information and follow all the the current uh, events that's cool. Well, I, I've really enjoyed over the last um, month or so starting to look at the website a little bit. And part of what I appreciate is the statistics and like the analytics section of the website, um, seeing the data you've collected. And I'm, I'm curious how um, how data basically gets added to the website. Is it you and your team that that watch? games and collect data that way is there is there a generic not generic but there is there a way that it's collected electronically through cameras or or data tracking systems like baseball has how is how is data added to your website i guess at this point we're still quite a ways behind that the a lot of tech there is a lot of technology that is starting to come into play with cameras and 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 that whole stat cast kind of model that baseball has really evolved into. But at this point, we're still, you know, working off of numbers that are, that are generated from line score data. And uh, you know, a lot of events on the, on the season are, are uh, 
uh, volunteers at events. The input the scores for the World Curling Tour or a lot of the different regional tours that are out there in place that we work with. Uh, we provide the scoring engine so that these events can provide live scores for their fans, for, for friends and family, and, and people following these events. So what I end up doing is I just, you know, I work with the events, so I'll set up the draw and the schedule and, and all the teams and all the information in there. And then I'll be on call when, uh, you know, if they have any problems or if we have to fix, you know, set up playoff brackets, all that stuff. So so there's that for quite a few of the tour events. And, and then uh, the other part of it, too, is, is that uh, we'll pull results from events that we aren't involved in. And so we'll manually put those in ourselves. So like the, the, the Men's World, for example, they've got their own official organizing committee and website and all that stuff, but we're still posting results because we know uh, a lot of people come to our site to, to see what's going on and uh, they want to know what the scores are and they don't have to jump through hoops to find them on some of the websites that are uh, a little bit more difficult to find scores. Sure, and it is collected really well. I I kind of look at it it's sort of like if you're comparing to baseball, I, I, I like to compare it to maybe a fan graphs or a baseball reference sort of um, sort of website for how much information is on here for for the sport, and I appreciate it that way. I don't know if you want to compare it to that. Is there is there a different type of website or or statistical grouping that you would compare it to? Well, it's neat to be compared to Fangraphs because it's probably one of my uh, most visited websites uh, personally. So, um, uh, sure. You know that is an end goal to to put lots of this information out to the public so fans can find what they're looking for and. And, and build something that, you know, most curling fans don't even know exists right now. A lot of the analytics work that we do is, is so new that even teams have a hard time uh, getting interested in it. And, and so we've been working hard to find teams that uh, want this information. And, yeah, we've found some over the, over the last couple of years and had some great experiences working with uh, Team Sweden. Uh, the women's team, uh, Anna yeah. Hasselberg, and her, her group out of Stockholm. And uh, prior to that, we had a Ontario team that uh, broke through in the Grand Slams, uh, Jacqueline Harrison's team out of Mississauga. That you know they they're they're a unique unique group in that they understand the concepts and and not afraid to think outside the box. That's really what it comes down to. Sure. Well, so when you when you say when uh, think outside the box or not, um, what's something that from your studies and your research that you found has maybe shown that conventional wisdom for the sport uh, isn't how matches should be played? I guess generally. Well, probably one of our biggest breakthroughs goes back to uh, about 2006 or so. And we were publishing some books at the time called The Black Book of Curling. And so we, we did a lot of statistical profiles on teams, but we also wrote some articles and, and talked about some scenarios. And one of the common scenarios in the game was uh, down one with hammer versus being up one without hammer in the last end. So, you know, for people who aren't... Uh, um, no, don't know much about curling. Essentially, hammer is when you have the last shot at the end. Mm-hmm. So you, you know you kind of count. You know you hold one point in your hand with your last stone, and your goal is to try and score two or more. 
Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as a high situation in curling because the hammer is an advantage. So when you have the hammer in any situation in a tie game, you're the one with the advantage. But the that that you know end game scenario where a team is down one with, the other team is up one without that hammer, that's kind of the classic battle scenario. And mm-hmm. for the longest time, the the common thinking was is that you wanted to be down one with hammer. But we, we we dug into the numbers, our early research at the time, and, and we found that being up one without the hammer was actually about a 60% favorite to win. So that went against common thinking of a lot of the top teams and players at the time. And and so it really got people thinking about, you know, different ways to look at the game. And, and even today, people still choose to be in the, you know, say air quotes, wrong situation. <laughs> but... You know, that's what happens when, uh, you know, you play by feel versus playing by numbers and, and using better data to make better decisions. Well, it's the way it should be. I agree. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, easier so, said than done, though, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I, I have a question. So I'm, I'm, I'm just – I have the website pulled up, and I, I think just from following the sport a little bit, I understand what most of the statistics – you have listed on the analytics and stats site uh, mean, but um, you said hammer is the last shot of every end. A steal, yep. you said, is if if the other team has hammer and you score at least one point, the other te- the team that That's doesn't correct. have hammer. Yep. Yep. Um, I'm looking at statistics though for 2017-2018, um, and I'm curious what uh, one point eeh and eef stand for? I, I don't know what those statistics stand for. Sorry, which one was that again? You just cut out for a second there. Uh, yeah, so there's two oh, columns, one that's called EEH and another EEF, and I didn't know what those so stood uh, for. Yeah, so that's just extra end with the hammer and extra end uh, steel, which means without hammer. Oh, sure, so, that makes so sense. So when you go into that... Uh, that extra end and you have hammer or you don't have hammer, what's your win-loss record in those situations? Okay. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Is there, am I just not seeing it? Is, this, is there like a glossary or or um, description on the website for... Yeah, we end up putting that in each event page. So okay. if you actually ended up looking on the, uh, the men's world standings, for example, you'd end up seeing those terms in that glossary there. Yeah, still, okay. still, uh, there's a few bugs here and there on the website, and some things that we can continue to improve upon, and and uh, you know, explaining what we do uh, sometimes would be helpful as well. I think to some fans out there too. So, you know, things you know, we're working on trying to improve the website and continue adding more and more as we go too. Sure. Well, so you you brought up the idea that you wanted to talk about. Uh, baseball a little bit, and the one question I ask everybody for my baseball podcast is why, why baseball? But I wanted to start with why you love baseball growing up, and then also push that to why you love curling. I, I think that both sports can have a good origin story. I guess you could say. <clears throat> yeah, I think for for a lot of people who are who are ball fans, it's it's you know their youth and and following the sports and. I don't know what it was that drew me to baseball, but I've always been statistically minded. 
Uh, when I was a kid, I would uh, stat and chart the the ball games. Uh, I'd, uh, you know, before I even know, knew how to do it properly, I had my own little system. I was probably eight, nine years old, watching the Blue Jays during the late '80s into the early '90s during the years where they, uh, you know, won a couple of World Titles, World Series titles, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, it was a pretty exciting time to be a, a fan of the team, and, but. You know, the numbers and, and everything behind that was something that always interested me. Uh, you know, I wanted to know the differences between the players. I wanted to know, uh, you know, what, uh, you know, what set set different players apart and everything. And, and eventually, as I got older, I got into some pretty significant fantasy uh, baseball and, and continue to do so today. And, you know, websites like Fangraphs and... and uh, you know, I use a few other uh, uh, Brooks Baseball and the, and the velocity sure. numbers. You've got uh, Baseball Savant, tons of great stuff there too. And and then now Stat mm-hmm. Tracker, uh, uh, Tracker. Uh, oh, what's the Statcast and and all the yep. data that comes out of there too is really uh, neat to to look at and review as well. Sure. So you, you loved baseball as a youth. What then? What then got you into curling? Like, what, how did you get into that sport? Because you're right, statistics can, can play a part in both sports, but they are they are different, obviously. <laughs> yeah, it's, curling in Canada is very much a, a main. It's a close to mainstream sport where I come from. Like, it's well known. There's lots of it on TV. Mm-hmm. You go into Western Canada, and uh, you know everybody knows what curling is. Like I'm from Ontario, not far from Toronto, and sure. it's you know there's a lot of uh, noise and other things that go around there. But you know, as a sport, you go to Western Canada, the Canadiana out there. You know, CFL football is uh, is as loved as the NFL is in the United States, <laughs> and and curling is is uh, a major sport out there, and the teams and everybody knows who they are. And, um, as a kid, I, I ended up watching it on TV. You know, similarities to how the game was played, and you know, kind of a turn-based, a lot of strategy, and, and uh, you know, how do you do this, to, and how's it going to affect what the opposition does, and all that. And and from there, I ended up playing the game when I was a when I was a kid. And played juniors, got to the uh, provincial level and competed there, played some on the World Curling Tour and Ontario Curling Tour events, and then also slowly involved, got involved in, uh, you know, management and, and helping build events. And, you know, it's it's something from my end, it's, it's it's been a passion of mine to get involved and, and try and grow the game. Skill-wise, uh, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at the game, but I'm never going to... Uh, be able to make a difference by throwing mm-hmm. the stone, but you know, being involved and working in lots of different levels of the sport, you know, I get to meet and work with a lot of the top players and, and associations and people in the game uh, all year long, and uh, it's a pretty special sport to be involved with. Yeah, no, I the little bit I've been around it, my wife has actually got me into it. She's been playing for about five years and. I can see why why it's gotten hold like it did, and um, you were right earlier. You mentioned how it's kind of taken hold in the U.S. I really do feel like if it had been a sport that had 
an ESPN type channel play it regularly for me as a kid growing up, I probably would have fallen into it a little bit earlier than I did. And I'm, I'm not super young anymore, I guess you could say in that sense. <laughs> yeah, we all, uh, those years all start to add up pretty quickly, don't they? <laughs> yeah, they it's, sure do. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of the things that's really neat about the sport is that uh, we're kind of going through that age of professionalism right now. Like every other sport has gone through this at some point. Like golf went through this mm-hmm. where the guys would be, you know, they'd have regular jobs, but then they'd go out and, you know, compete in tournaments. You know, you go back and look at a lot of the other professional sports too, where, you know, they would, they'd have real jobs in the off season or, or mixed around other things that they do. And, and, you know, a lot of the top teams, you're looking at probably the top 10 to 20 teams in the world, especially ones that are the, the national teams, they're mm-hmm. getting pretty close to being full-time athletes. There's there's definitely teams out there that are already full-time uh, curlers. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's a lot of growth at the elite level of the sport where, you know, you're seeing uh, more major championships come together. The, the World Curling Federation is starting the uh, World Cup of Curling You've got the Grand Slams in Canada where, you know, all the top teams end up playing these events and they start to win some fairly significant money. But the other part of it is is the sponsorships on their backs. And for mm-hmm. these teams, the more opportunities they get to play on TV, the more valuable their sponsorship uh, revenues become. And that's, that's really where the teams are making their money right now. And, you know, we're, we're, kind of on the verge you know we need we need more we need some more bigger events in order in order for the top teams to professionalize but with the excitement of the olympics with team schuster winning that gold medal you know there's we've always said this like i I work closely with the u.s curling association as well doing statistics Mm -hmm. for them and i do some analytics work with their teams and and you know we've always said this when the usa wins the gold we've got to make and now, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with the interest in the game, the corporate sponsors that are hopefully going to come on board, the personalities that that team uh, possesses, you know, it should be a fun time coming up. Yeah, that's my hope, too. <laughs> I guess you could say just get the sport out there more and more people involved with it can't be a bad thing, I guess, generally. Yeah, exactly. Well, so I have... Um, before I forget, I have a couple of questions that uh, the club that I'm a member at, there, there's some people that had a couple of questions that uh, they wanted me to ask you on this podcast, if that's okay. Certainly. Fire away. Sure. Well, so one of the questions was, with the when watching the Olympics or when watching the, is it Briar Cup? Am I saying that right? Yeah, so it's the, the Kim Hortons Briar. So yep. the term Briar okay. goes back to when McDonald's uh, tobacco company used to sponsor the Canadian National Championship. And okay. so a Briar was like a tobacco stick of some sort of product of theirs. So that's where that name originates from. Okay. So when watching that and seeing the different players, on, when they're about to throw the statistics like on the screen... Uh, we're showing shot-making percentage. And one of the questions yep. was, how how is that calculated and how subjective is that percentage that's shown? 
it's it's totally there there's a plan and a and a process in place for that but it's definitely a subjective statistic like it, it's one thing that i manage actually for the grand slams and the us usa nationals but at the end of the day it's it's a bit of uh you know the the work you get put into that is is volunteers watching the games and you you know we'll usually get some really good people to do this work but there's challenges even with that you know you've got teams on the ice where you know you don't always hear what they're saying so you're not sure what a plan b is what a plan c is mm-hmm. You know, the other part of it, too, is, is that the teams don't always indicate what they're trying to do. So, you know, we're trying to do our best to, to get a read for it. The biggest thing is, and, and this is, you know, I do this for a living for, for a bunch of events, and, and it, it gives us a starting point on the numbers. But unless mm-hmm. the, you know, unless the coaches own, um, or sorry, the team's own coaches are, are statting their own games, you know, the data is really only as valuable as, as, you know, the person taking it. And and it's information that's valuable to TV. So, mm-hmm. you know, what I'd always suggest is you take it with a grain of salt. You know, there's definitely okay. uh, some value in it. And the, the other part of shooting percentages, too, is that each player gets to throw two stones. You know, mm-hmm. would you rather throw two, sh- two half shots and shoot 50%? Or would you rather... <laughs> throw a total miss on your first shot and throw your last one a hundred percent, you know, and the, you know, it does line up differently in, in that regard. So, you know, it's, there's a lot of, there's definitely a lot of subjectivity to it and the analytics work that they do that, that we worked with uh, Sweden and some of the other teams is, does not, mm-hmm. doesn't go into that world at all because of that we want to take the subjectivity out of it and we want to try and put numbers together and analysis together that you know isn't uh dependent on you know data collection that isn't you know nearly as reliable as you want it to be sure well um before i get to that question i've read a little bit about it but what what do you mean specifically by the analytics work that you did with team Sweden? um I, I know it's generally related to what the other team they're playing against does for the most part, but so how, how did you, yeah, how did you describe yeah, it? Please, so you can do it better than I am. <laughs> the types of things we'd look at is we'd look at how a team plays the first end. So when they start with the hammer, when they start without the hammer, you know, what kind of approach do you expect from them out of the gate? You know, are they going to play aggressive against you? So you need to be ready to, play a little bit more of a, a passive counterattack type game or are they going to come out and play passive and in that regard you need to you know increase your aggression and, and you know how many rocks you're going to put into play so there's some changes there the other thing too is that it shows is that uh, you know what uh, you know how good is a team when they do do some of these things as well and so now what you're looking at is, uh, you know, should we, which path should we push these, these teams down? You know, when now you start looking at uh, what we call our end game scenarios where, you know, let's look at our, our team's win rate throughout the, uh, you know, with one end to go, with two ends to go, with three ends to go. 
And this information is publicly available on Curling Zone underneath the analytics tab where you can see the generic numbers. So, for example, your down one with hammer is about uh, 43% versus up one without is about 57%. So that mm-hmm. was the scenario that I was talking about earlier. Yep. So we can actually go back and look at every scenario back through the end. So then what we do is we look at how each team compares and you start to figure out, okay, is this a team that, you know, I, I hate the term clutch in baseball because I don't, it's hard to, hard to tell whether it applies or not. Cause, mm-hmm. You know, a pitcher is playing a hitter. Did the, did the hitter just hit a great, you know, hit a good pitch or did the pitcher uh, mess, mess the play up? And, and mm-hmm. all that stuff too. The other part of baseball being that sample sizes are, are difficult to know whether a player is just, you know, just being unlucky. Whereas in curling, you're playing a situation a lot of times. So when you have to draw the forefoot for the win, there's nothing your opponent can do to influence that. You're throwing that shot now that, you know, are you going to make it or not under pressure? And that's where clutch comes into play. Um, You can kind of see that from the numbers as well. So now when that's, you know, when you've got a team that's above average, uh, across their ends, their situations, you know, let's say they're, they're 10 to 15% above the average win rate. You know, you know, you're going to have to take some chances and take some risks to overcome that uh, advantage they have on you. You know, if a team is not strong, they're average or below average, you can be more patient and play a little bit more of a, of a, you know, a waiting game and, and, and uh, make sure you don't lose the game before your opponent gives you a chance to win it. So sure. definitely some stuff there. And, and then we look at the scoring profiles of teams, you know, the efficiency stats that we call hammer efficiency, steel defense, uh, force efficiency, and, and steel efficiency. And, you know, we can go and look at each one of these scenarios when a team is tied with the hammer, when they're up one with the hammer, when they're tied without the hammer, you know, how good are they at uh, generating offense and limiting your opponent's uh, scoring opportunities? You know, you can you can definitely see some trends as to where a team is strong and where they're weak, and uh, attack accordingly. Yeah, that's that's fascinating, and I I need to dig into your website more just because I it's it's fun to read about. Um, the other question I had from the the club that I'm at is, do you have any advice for for beginning curlers? on what stats they should be tracking to help their own game. Is there is there something like a general numbers thing that you, you think like a somebody who's done it for, let's say, under four or five years, if there's something they should be reading up on more than other statistics? The biggest thing at that level is just to go out and play. Don't worry about numbers too much. You know, just keep working on making shots and practice, throw lots of stones, and get a feel for the ice. Um, one of the things, it's not a stat specifically, but learn learn how to use split times, you know, the, where you take a stopwatch and you time a stone from, from uh, you know, when a player's sliding out from the back line to the hog line to get a feel for how fast the ice is. And, and you know, there's, there's other split times that you can look at and use too, and to track the speed of a stone and, and and how things are changing throughout the game. That would probably be the one thing I would suggest doing. The biggest thing is just to, you know, 
know, get feel without worrying about the numbers. And then when you're good enough to execute, then you start bringing the numbers in. And that's one of the things that we always try and do too. You know, you, you know, analytics and numbers and data, you know, you get people gloss over all that stuff so easily. And, you know, you can, you can really turn people off when you work with, with data and numbers. The biggest thing is, is you got to show people the value of it. And, you know, how can it help my game? What does it mean to this shot or this team or any of that stuff? And, and that's probably the biggest thing to numbers in general is, is, uh, is making sure that you make it relevant to people. Sure. That makes sense. And then, um, so if you're starting out kind of like I am, I guess, uh, I, I've done one league, uh, in my lifetime, I guess. And this spring I'm doing a mixed doubles league with my wife and I'm, I'm just curious. Um, Oh, very cool. What, where do you, what, where do you curl at? I, I'm mostly a member at, uh, it's called Frogtown in St. Paul, but the spring yep. league I'm I doing know, is at the St. Paul it, yep. Curling Club. Okay. Yeah, the the spring league is at the St. Paul Curling Club, but I'm mostly a member at Frogtown. Yeah, both those clubs are great. I know uh, the growth of curling in in, uh, in the United States has been huge, but especially in the Twin Cities, you've got uh, Frogtown, uh, I believe, was the second club that formed in uh, in the cities. And, and then they built a club in Blaine, the Four Seasons Club, mm-hmm. Chaska, uh, built a brand new, absolutely ama- amazing, beautiful facility. I believe Richfield is uh, just getting a, a, a club off the ground now too. I believe they're going to end up in an arena for the time being. But uh, I know uh, Olympian Jessica Schultz is involved with that. Yeah, and, no, she uh, comes by Frogtown once in a while. Yeah, and I I know she's pretty excited about that. And and you know what, mixed doubles, it's it's such a fun discipline for the sport. Um, I think you're going to have a ton of fun playing that. Um, it's it's really great in the sport that you you know you have a, a, a male and a female player, and you you know mm-hmm. you really have to trade off roles in the game. It really uh, changes the the way you approach the game, and you know I think it's great for what our game is and and and, and how the social side of it works out well. And you know for that it's it's a crazy game. The number one uh, piece of advice I give you for mixed doubles is is get your stone to the button as quick as possible, or just in front of the button, because it's a it's a race to the to the forefoot, and you gotta just you gotta position every stone, and you gotta watch out because in mixed doubles the 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 favor can turn very quickly. <laughs> I believe you, and I. I... I certainly hope my wife. She's she's a much better curler than I am, but it's going to be fun playing together and, and doing that because we have young kids and it's hard to get away and do things together sometimes as often as we used to before kids. And I'm excited to have this opportunity to do that with her. Yeah, looking forward to hearing about uh, your adventures too. Yeah, thanks. Well, so. Um, Yes, I, I I want to kind of go back to how you, you started in curling. When did you start curling? How old were you? You said you were a junior. So um, I'm, I'm bringing it back because I have kids that I know. They're only three now, but they're very interested in watching us play and, and, and being a part of it, and they want to be on the ice when we're there. Like, 
how old were you when you started playing and, and when would you recommend maybe kids start being a part of the sport? Well, I was in elementary school when I first got interested in playing. I think it was grade seven or something. So the way the game is that the, the involvement over the years, but for whatever reason, it's not a sport that has uh, evolved to include, uh, you know, youth uh, divisions like you see in a lot of other sports out there. I think a lot of it is it's, it, it can be pretty hard for kids uh, of, you know, let's say 10 or younger to even just push the stone down the, down the sheet. You know, mm-hmm. you got a 42 pound uh, piece of granite that you got to slide something like 130, 140 feet. You know, that takes a bit of work, a bit of, a bit of strength. So, you know, one of the things I've got, a, I've got a couple of kids myself and, you know, I've, you know, they don't play or anything yet. Uh, Daughter is uh, is uh, eight and uh, son is uh, three. What we've done is we've taken them out onto the ice, let them push the stones around, uh, ride the rocks, you know, set them up on a stone and push them down the ice and ride it like a like a horse down the sheet. That's a lot of fun. Um, the thing that works well for kids of that age, though, for something fun and just simple and, and to get them on the ice is just to play a short game. So what you do is you just take some stones and you and you throw them from the hack to the house right in front of you, and mm-hmm. you know it starts with the fun part of hitting stones and and you know some thoughts about where to put a stone and placement and all that. So you know I think for kids that's never a bad thing. You know bring them out to the club sometime when it's uh, you know during a bond spiel and when everything's over. A lot of times the club will be happy to, uh, you know, allow you to take your kids out there and, and just get a feel for it and, and touch it. But um, probably in the 10 to 12 range is when most kids are, you know, strong enough to be able to start participating in it. And and then there's all kinds of opportunities you get into the game in your teenage years with uh, uh, under 16s, under 18s, and, and under 21s, which are all the different junior levels that you have. So. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, this is definitely a sport that, uh, you know, I'm not going to say it doesn't take a lot to get to a high level in it, but there's certainly a lot of opportunities for people who are interested in the game and want to put the work in to uh, practice and, and compete. Sure. Well, and I, I like the 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 short game, like you, you mentioned, for, for kids to throw just at the, the close house out of a hack, but it feels to me like T-ball did for little kids or, or maybe basketball for kids where you can lower the rim, like anything to get a kid yeah. interested in the sport when they can actually do it um, to their like, strength like and one their of the level things. has to help. Yeah, like one of the things that you'll see sometimes at some clubs, what they'll do is they'll actually put a, a set of circles halfway down the sheet. So what mm-hmm. they'll do with their junior kids is they'll play, you know, half the sheet distance as they get a little bit older. You know, I, I think the biggest thing is just, you know, giving kids the opportunity to to get out there and, and see it a little bit. And, and eventually when they, you know, show interest in what they want to do and whether they want to get involved in it, then, then they can start uh, doing it from a bit of, a, you know, a, an educated base. You know, they've been out there, they push the stones around and all that stuff too. And, and you know, the more kids we get involved, in the sport, the better it is at the end of the day. 
Sure. Well, then, so I I have a technical question for you then because I'm I'm still learning. I've only done it for about a year, year and a half. Um, I still find, like, I, I stretch beforehand and I I, um, I practice shooting out of the hack as much as I can, but I still find that I use the rock more than I should just for some sort of balance where I see people on, my t- on TV doing it and they're just kind of flicking it with their fingers. How, how What advice would you give for somebody who doesn't have that sort of balance or agility that, that um, you see on TV, I guess, to be able to do it where you're not pushing the rock? It's That just comes down to purely to practice. Get out there, get a okay. chance to to throw more stones and, 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 and slide. The one thing that, that is a good, uh, a good training tool is to, to slide more without the stone. So if okay. you slide and, and you can, and you can take a few practice slides before you pick up a stone and throw it, it allows you the opportunity to start working on that balance. You know, there's other tools that you could use too. They have the stabilizers, the crutches, which are, which are, you know, like, you know, rather than holding a broom in your arm where it doesn't always uh, allow you to put much pressure on it, there's these uh, delivery aids called the stabilizer or crutch mm-hmm. and it allows you to square up your body and where you put your hand, you know, the goal is what you want to do is you want to keep your shoulders square to the target. So when you slide out, you know, you don't want one shoulder down or anything like that because it can hurt how you throw the stone. So think about how to keep your shoulders square, and, and uh, you know these devices will naturally put your hand at a height that you know, makes it a lot easier to to keep yourself square and, and and facing the target correctly. Yeah, I I know I need to to get down. I I still have been using other people's shoes or or a slider just on the bottom of my shoe this year and I'm planning to buy shoes this summer but it's it, I feel like I've been told more than a few times that when you actually own your own shoes um, it's a little bit easier to practice along that line is that something you'd recommend yeah I, I now you're doing it exactly the right way you know a pair of shoes can be pretty costly in the game um, I'd suggest buy yourself, buying yourself now that you're interested and you're planning on playing for a while go out and make sure you buy yourself a good quality pair of shoes that'll last you for a while um, but if you're just getting started in the game and you're not sure if you're going to continue for it you know every curling club has brooms hanging on the wall for the most part so you could grab a broom from the club stock they're not going to be great but you know what most people who are starting out the game aren't doing much with the sweeping anyways so it's more uh, a matter of, of getting used to it you know clubs will have uh, sliders or borrowing shoes or stuff like that, you know, until you know that you want to do it for a few years, you can get involved in the sport very affordably. The biggest thing is, you know, a pair of, uh, there's one thing that I would say that you do is make sure that you've got a pair of, you know, loose fitting, uh, uh, slacks or, 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 uh, sweatpants, something where you can actually stretch out in. Don't wear jeans Mm -hmm. when curling. That's just bad, bad news. (laughs) especially sure. guys out there. But, uh, you know, try out the game, give it a chance, and then once you're interested in, in pursuing it uh, for the long term, 
definitely invest in a, in a good pair of shoes and get yourself a good quality broom to use as well. Those are the two key things. You know, you can add all the extra bells and whistles as you go, but uh, those are the two things that you definitely want to start with. Yeah, I like that advice. I know I I finally got a broom about a month or two ago, so I'm ready to go on that end. And yeah, it's just an exciting sport to be a part of, and and activity, and something to look forward to weekly or or twice weekly, however often people play, or or more than that, frankly, if you're higher levels, I suppose. Oh yeah, that's great. There's there's so many people who just play that game and that are that have fallen in love with it, and but uh, it's the sport has given so much back to me at the same time too. And, you know, there's very few people in the game that, uh, you know, you'd consider to be, you know, not good people, you know, very rarely do you see, you know, a collection of people coming together where you get, uh, you know, so little conflict and, and, and such good people to compete with and, and against at the same time too, you know, it's the whole thing about the, the socializing that goes with the game at the, at mm-hmm. the club levels and, and bonds fields and all of that. And, you know, it's not quite the same as it used to be at the elite level when, uh, you know, the partying and, and everything that went on was a pretty significant part of the sport. But you'll still see a lot of the top teams socialize with each other uh, when they're either eliminated from an event or or things are just getting started. So, yeah, it's fun to see how everybody comes together under curling. Sure. Well, that's part of the reason I I thought it was interesting to learn about first and foremost, just because I, my wife told me that the winning team typically has to buy the first round after the match and hang out with the the losing team. And I I, I get that that's probably not higher level curling necessarily, but maybe that is what it was started out to be. And I, I know it definitely is at the league level that I'm playing at. Yeah, it's uh, it, it, it definitely is something that's a part of the game. It's maybe not there in the uh, the elite level, the tour events as much as it used to be. But and it's not the same everywhere in the game you go. Like you go to Western Canada, for example, and a lot of times those clubs are set up. You know, you got a four sheet club, you got eight tables, so the teams go on their own. The, the buy around for the loser is something that uh, you do. Uh, it's definitely an Ontario thing. It's definitely an East Coast thing, but it's also a Midwest USA thing too. You know, you see, you definitely see that happen in uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin and all the clubs in that area. You know, it's the best part of the game. You know, when you're, you know, when you're new to a town or you've got a business or any of those things that it's important to go out and meet people, you're really, it's really valuable to have that opportunity to step on the ice. And, you know, let's say you're playing a 16-week league. You play 16 different teams. You get the opportunity to meet four different people every week. And you have a beer after the game and get into the conversations and get to know each other. You know, it's, it's the perfect social sport in that regard. And, and you know, it, it builds communities and brings people together, and, and it's pretty awesome. Sure. Well, yeah, so I, um, I, I guess before we, we end tonight, I just wanted to give you one more chance to, to say 
who you are and how people can connect with you because I, I appreciate your time and I know um, it's getting late for everybody, but um, if you could say that and how people can connect with you the other que- with other questions they have, I'd really appreciate it. Yeah, so you can find us on, on the internet, curlingzone.com. I work and manage the World Curling Tour as well. That's worldcurl.com. Um, the Grand Slams in Canada are sort of like the, the majors of the tour. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can find those at thegrandslamacurling.com. Uh, USA Curl, uh, usacurl.org. And, and that organization has been uh, great to work with forever. And uh, and then, of course, you can find lots of great information on, on social media. Uh, you just search for Curling Zone, one word on on uh, on uh, Facebook and, and on Twitter. It's at Curling Zone is our handle. So follow us, uh, send us some notes or questions. We're always happy to uh, interact with our fans and everything. What? Sounds great. Well, Gary, this was really fun. I had a blast chatting with you, and I, I appreciate your time. Um, I hope you have a good night, and thank you again for, for coming on this show. Thanks, Corey. Really appreciate it, and uh, keep up the great work with your podcast. I'll try my best. So, well, yeah, have have a good night, and I, I will uh, talk to you again later. All right, cheers. Take care. Bye.